you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. At a posh Manhattan dinner party, a visitor was there kind of nervously telling his, the guests about himself. And as he concluded, he said, I, I have a charming and understanding wife, but we have no children. As his listeners appeared to be waiting for him to continue, he haltingly said, You see, my wife is unbearable. Noticing the puzzled glances, he quickly added, what I mean is, my wife is inconceivable. As the puzzlement turned to amusement, he floundered for another word and he said, that is, my wife, she is impregnable. Socrates said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. The ladies' home journal said the average woman would rather have beauty than brains because she knows that the average man can see much better than he can think. Maybe you've heard it said that marriages are made in heaven, but so are thunder and lightning. Don't assume that every sad-eyed woman has loved and lost. She may have gotten him. And the most difficult years of marriage are those following the wedding. You know, unfortunately, much of what we hear about marriage today consists of jokes and one-liners. But our verse today tells us something quite different. In chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now that word honor is a little bit misleading. We, we tend to think of honor as let's have a banquet for marriage. Let's put a plaque on the wall honoring marriage. Let's have a standing ovation for marriage. But this word honor actually means precious or valuable. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, Paul uses the same Greek word when he talks about precious stones. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter uses the word to describe the precious blood of Christ. And in 2 Peter 1.4, it, it describes God's precious and magnificent promises. And so what the writer is saying is that marriage should be treated like it's precious. Like it's priceless. Like it's more valuable than any other possession you have. It's one of those things that money can't buy. Now, why is marriage supposed to be considered priceless? Well, let me give you several reasons. Number one is because God ordained it. Man didn't come up with this idea. Hey, how about 
we make men and women, put them together, and they'll live together, and blah, blah, blah. Man didn't come up with this. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll find that Adam was asleep when God put his plan together for the first marriage. God ordained it. Secondly, because it's God's building block for society to propagate children and to raise them. He told the first couple in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply. And then later commanded children to honor your father and your mother. This is the building block of society. Third, because it's the highest form and most intimate form of human relationship. In fact, the Bible indicates that marriage fulfills us as individuals. In Genesis 2.18, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then He created Eve and put them together and established a principle at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis that the two will become one flesh. Marriage fulfills us as individuals. And then fourthly, because it's a picture of Christ and His church, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Christ being the groom and the church being the bride. And then a fifth reason, and I'm sure you can create others, because it's a covenant relationship that we enter into for life. When we're married, we say those words, till death do us part. And so God ordained it to be a building block of society. It's the highest form of of relationship that we enter into in a covenant relationship for life. And it depicts the picture of Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. Now, how do we honor marriage? How do we treat it as if it's precious? Well, to answer that question, I want us to look at it from the other direction. I want us to look at how we dishonor marriage. How do we devalue it? How do we treat it as if it's cheap? Let me suggest five ways to you this morning. Number one, we dishonor marriage by forbidding it. You know, Satan is very shrewd. If, If he can't get us to compromise in the area of sexual promiscuity, he will go to the other extreme and he will attempt to move us toward asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that you attain godliness by denying yourself certain things that are not prohibited in Scripture. Things like food or certain comforts or sexual pleasure in marriage. One of the early church fathers, Origen, went so far as to have himself castrated so that he would be free from sexual temptation. That's going a little far. Augustine, who had a concubine and a son with her when he came to Christ, thought that he had to give her up and devote himself to celibacy in order to follow Christ. I think it's sad that he made that choice. You see, he viewed sex in marriage as a necessary evil to procreate children, but not as God's gift to be enjoyed. And in so doing, he dishonored marriage. Paul strongly condemns asceticism in Colossians chapter 2 where he says this in verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but 
are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In fact, he tells us in 1 Timothy 4.3 that those who forbid marriage are false teachers. He warns us against men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So we dishonor marriage by forbidding it. Second way we dishonor marriage is by saying that homosexual marriage is valid. Now, 20 years ago, I would have never considered having this point in my message. But today, it has to be addressed. In fact, there are churches today, denominations today, that are dividing over this issue of whether they should have gay marriages. In fact, I fully anticipate that if our country does not change the direction we're moving in, that there is coming a day when I won't be allowed to make this point without prosecution. I don't mean persecution. I mean prosecution. Because what I will be saying will be considered a hate crime. But regardless of that, I will continue to tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible says in Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. In Romans 1.26 and 27, Paul says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In 1 Corinthians 6-9, Paul says it this way, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it seems pretty obvious to me that if you take something that the Bible calls indecent and unnatural and perverse and an abomination, and you call it marriage, that dishonors marriage. Third way we dishonor marriage is by divorce. While divorce and sexual immorality are not new, Forty years ago in our country, they used to be frowned upon. And moral faithfulness was viewed as desirable. But beginning in the 1960s, our culture threw off Christian standards and we openly embraced free sex and easy divorce. And unfortunately, the church has not been insulated from these cultural trends. It was about that same time that our country started making that U-turn that Francis Schaeffer made this observation. People drift along from generation to generation and the morally unthinkable becomes thinkable as the years move on. 
The late comedian George Burns used to say that he could remember the time when the air was clean and sex was dirty. Now the air is dirty and sex is clean. And our culture is more concerned about the quality of the air. Now I realize that many Christians have been divorced. And I realize that many of you, if you could turn back the clock, would go back and do some things differently. And I certainly don't want to add to your grief and pain this morning. But I do want to set the biblical standard back where it belongs. I don't know who came up with the phrase, no-fault divorce. But that's an oxymoron. No-fault divorce gives you the idea that just, it just kind of happened. It's nobody's fault. It just kind of happened. And there's really, because it's nobody's fault, there's no guilt involved in that. And nothing could be more misleading. As God's people, we need to reverse the trend of the past 40 years. People should be able to look at Christian marriages and marvel that we have stayed together and worked through difficulties because of the covenant that we have made before the Lord. That is honoring marriage. To walk away always dishonors it. Now, God does tolerate divorce under certain circumstances. I'm not going to go into those circumstances this morning, but I will say, as Jesus said in Matthew 19.8, it always reflects the hardness of the human heart. And God states plainly in Malachi 2.16 that He hates it. Fourth way we dishonor marriage is by marrying an unbeliever. Many Christians don't seem to consider it a sin to marry an unbeliever. But God does. For God's people in the Old Testament, He called it an, an abomination in Malachi 2.11. Because you're marrying someone who is committed to a foreign God. Paul makes it clear that we are not to be bound together with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 6.14. And in 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul tells us that we are only free to marry in the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, since marriage is to be a picture of Christ and His church, marrying an unbeliever destroys that picture. But more importantly, Marrying an unbeliever keeps your marriage from being what God designed it to be because you cannot share with your spouse the most important area of your life. And that's the spiritual area. I even know pastors who don't take this seriously. We had a, a, a couple that called and they wanted to get married in their church and then use our church for their reception. And since our name would be in the paper, I said, well, that'd be fine, except we need to kind of screen the couple and make sure that we're comfortable with the wedding. And I explained to the pastor that we don't marry a believer with an unbeliever. And so I asked him, are they both believers? And he said, well, I know she is, but I really don't know about him. This guy was already planning to marry them. He had never asked the question whether they were both believers. 
I will warn you ahead of time. If you want to get married at the chapel and you're planning as a believer to marry an unbeliever, we will not be a party to that. Because if I'm going to stand up and marry someone, I am basically adding my blessing to that relationship. And I will not add my blessing to a a marriage relationship that dishonors marriage. Now, if you're already married to an unbeliever, Paul instructs you in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-16 to remain in that marriage, but you are not to sign up for that kind of marriage. Let me add a footnote. I will marry two unbelievers. Marriage is not a Christian institution. In Genesis 2, God established marriage for all of mankind. And I think that's why here in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says marriage is to be held in honor among all. I also know pastors who won't marry to unbelievers. Their attitude is, you know, if you're not part of the church, then you ought to just go to the justice of the peace because all you're doing is having a legal contract. But I would argue with that, that marriage is more than a legal contract even for two unbelievers. Jesus said in Matthew 19.6, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You know who He was talking to in that instance? He was talking to the Pharisees. Unbelievers. You see, in marriage, God joins two people together even when they're unbelievers. If two unbelievers come to me and want to get married, I will agree to marry them as long as they go through the counseling. And so I will meet with them for four or five times and clearly explain to them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I also know that down the road, when they have some struggles, or down the road when they have kids and think, you know, we need to get our kids into church, guess where they're going to come? They're going to come back to where they got married. So I'm not going to send them down the street to get married in some liberal church where they're going to end up getting connected to that church. We've actually, in our history, we've had deacons in our church who got married here as unbelievers, came back to the church, got saved, and, and, and got into leadership. So again... Marriage is an institution that God established for mankind. And I will marry two unbelievers. Fifth way to dishonor marriage is by having sexual relations outside of marriage. And this is really the main point that the writer is making here, and that's evident by what he says next in verse 4, he says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Now look at that second phrase. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed is a euphemism for sex in marriage. So the practical question that we need to ask as we look at this verse is, how do we keep the marriage bed undefiled? And I want to talk about two obvious answers to that question. 
The number one way that we keep the marriage bed undefiled is by guarding ourselves from sexual sin. Leadership Magazine, which is a journal for pastors, did a poll back in 1988. A poll of pastors. Here are their results. They found that since entering the local church ministry, 23% of pastors had done something with someone other than their spouse that they considered sexually inappropriate. It's almost a quarter. 12% admitted to having extramarital intercourse. 18% said they had engaged in other forms of extramarital sexual contact. Now, to compare the numbers, they conducted a similar poll among the subscribers to Christianity Today magazine. These would be Christians who are committed enough that they have a regular Christian magazine being delivered to their house. Forty-five percent indicated having done something they considered sexually inappropriate. Almost half. Twenty-three percent said they had had extramarital intercourse. And twenty-eight percent said they had engaged in other forms of extramarital sexual contact. Clearly, this is a major area where Satan hits believers. So it's not enough to sit here and agree with God's standards for sexual purity. It's not enough to say, Amen, preach it, brother. You had better have a strategy to guard yourself from falling. So let me give you some some suggestions for your strategy. Number one, maintain a close daily walk with Christ. If we drift from the Lord and are not spending consistent time in the Word of God and in prayer, we become vulnerable to temptation. Do you spend quality time with the Lord and are you accountable to some other Christian to make sure you continue that? That's the first step in our strategy. Second, maintain a close relationship with your mate. One of the questions I inevitably ask couples who are seeing me for marriage counseling is this, When is the last time you had a date? And the most common answer is silence. When's the last time you had a date? When's the last time you got a babysitter and the two of you just went somewhere alone and spent quality time together? You see, when you're not dating your spouse, you become roommates rather than husband and wife. Roommates talk about bills and groceries and cleaning the house and all those things, but they never have those intimate conversations that husband and wife have. You have to carve out time to be close to your mate. In the leadership survey, when pastors were asked what was the major factor that led to their moral failure, 78% said that the main factor was physical and emotional attraction and the close second was marital dissatisfaction if we grow distant from our mate 
we become vulnerable to temptation. Third thing I would suggest in your strategy is check your thought life. Every act of sexual immorality begins with the thought of sexual immorality. So we stop sexual immorality right here. Jesus made this point very graphically in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his, in her heart, in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus didn't mean for you to literally maim yourself, but He did mean to underscore the serious nature of mental lust. You had better make the sacrifices necessary to stop it. To obey Jesus' words, you need to avoid watching TV programs or movies or videos that tempt you to lust. You need to devise ways to block pornography on the Internet. You need to be accountable to another believer in this area of your life. In the leadership poll in 1988, 20% of pastors admitted to looking at sexually oriented media at least once a month. And that's consistent with the 23% who acted on it. And I might say that 1988 was prior to the Internet. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that to have victory in the spiritual battle that we are engaged in, we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When that thought comes into my mind, I have to capture it at that stage and bring it into obedience to Jesus Christ, not wait until it bears fruit in my life. You see, that's where the battle is won or lost in your mind. Fourth element of your strategy is memorize Scripture. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, on each occasion He quoted Scripture. Now, how did He know it? You say, well, He wrote it. Well, don't play that game with me. He memorized it. And if Jesus needed to memorize and quote Scripture in the face of temptation, then how much more do you and I? Psalm 119, 9 and 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's powerful. And then the fifth suggestion. Put a fence around your marriage. You know, if you go to the Grand Canyon and don't want to fall over the edge, you need to either 
stay behind the railing or don't go near an edge where there is no railing? How do you put a fence around your marriage? Well, you start by realizing that there's danger out there. You're not really going to build a fence until you really are convinced there's the possibility that you might fall. Putting a fence around your marriage means that you don't enter into a close friendship with a member of the opposite sex. You say, well, Dan, we're just talking. Well, that's all innocent enough, but there is peril lurking. Don't go near the edge. Putting a fence around your marriage means that you are accountable to your spouse. When I talk to couples that have experienced sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness in their marriage, it's almost inevitable that I will find that there are large periods of time when one spouse or the other is somewhere where their mate has no idea where they are. They're not accountable for their time. And they are lurking near the edge and they fall. So the first way we keep the marriage bed undefiled is by guarding ourselves from sexual sin. Let me give you a second and a final one. Second way is by enjoying the marriage bed. D.H. Field writes in the New Dictionary of Theology edited by Sinclair Ferguson, David Wright, and J.I. Packer. He says, quote, The history of the church betrays a far less positive attitude to sexuality than the Bible's. With very few exceptions, patristic and medieval writers condemn the sensual pleasure of intercourse as sinful. Their attitude to marriage, too, was at best ambivalent. Now, as a preacher, I sometimes fear that I give people that impression. That I preach so often against sexual intercourse that maybe I fail to distinguish the fact that God invented sexual intercourse. That it is a gift from Him and that it is a beautiful thing in His eyes in the right context. And the right context is the marriage bed. Verse 4 says, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The positive way to say that is the marriage bed is pure. It's holy. It's pleasing to God. The Bible affirms the pleasure of the sexual relationship in marriage for both men and women. In Proverbs 5.19, Solomon instructs his son to let his wife's breast satisfy him at all times and to be exhilarated with her love. That word exhilarated literally means intoxicated with her love. Get drunk on your wife. Song of Solomon is R-rated in the way it extols the joys of sex in marriage for both partners. In Genesis 18.12, Sarah refers to her sexual relations with her husband Abraham as having pleasure with him. And I like the way the King James puts it in Genesis 26.8. It says, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. There's a sport you can both take up. 
You see, it seems pretty obvious to me, if you want to prevent sex outside of marriage, then enjoy sex within marriage. Paul tells both husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 5, that they do not have authority over their own bodies, but their spouse does. And that they have a responsibility to meet the sexual needs of their mate as a preventative to immorality. This is your greatest protection against sexual sin. In fact, Paul puts it very bluntly in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. He says, stop depriving one another. If you are saying no to your spouse, you're asking for trouble. And then this verse ends with a strong warning. The end of verse 4. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This isn't the only place in Scripture we hear this. I read this verse earlier, but I'll read it again. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And Revelation 21, 8 says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God is serious about this issue. He does not look the other way on this sin. You say, but Dan, I'm a believer. Well, if you're claiming to be a believer and you are habitually practicing sexual immorality, the reality is that you may not be a believer at all. Read what John says about that in 1 John 3, 9. He says the one who habitually commits sin is not of God. And if you are a believer, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, God will discipline you severely. And as David found out in 2 Samuel 12, the consequences can be great. You say, but Dan, we live under grace. I love it when Christians say that. We live under grace. That's greasy grace. You know, the, the book that explains to us most clearly what it means to live under grace is the book of Galatians. And listen to the way he ends that great book of grace in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
Grace does not give me the license to commit sin. Grace gives me the power to live a changed life. Let me close with a word of encouragement. Immediately after saying in 1 Corinthians 6 that neither fornicators nor adulterers nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God, we read this in verse 11, and such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Neither homosexuality nor adultery nor any other kind of sexual perversion is beyond God's forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 graciously promises if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15 and yet he found mercy at the cross. And so can you. And I can tell you this morning that no matter what you have done, you can experience God's forgiveness and God's cleansing and the gift of eternal life if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation for a marriage that is precious. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that honors marriage, that calls marriage precious and priceless. And Father, I pray that we would look away from the view of our world and our culture and look to what You say about marriage and that we would lift it up and count it priceless. And for some here in this room today that we would recommit ourselves to the vows that we made to our spouse. And in Your power, that we would seek to love them the way You love us. And Father, I pray truly that our marriages would be such that they would paint the picture of Jesus' relationship with each of us. A relationship filled with sacrifice and submission that honors You to the glory of God. We thank You for the privilege of asking that in Jesus' name. Amen.